Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This episode is part one of two and is a recording of a live event. The Fireside Chat has become a staple of leadership under fire, leadership development, and human performance resident programs. In early 2021, the LUF team decided to launch a virtual Fireside Chat series where LUF senior man, Jim McNamara, hosts candid conversations with seasoned leaders and human performance thought leaders. Leadership Under Fire's second virtual fireside chat featured FDNY retirees, Deputy Chief Joseph DiBernardo, and Captain Louis Andrade. Captain Andrade entered the ranks of the FDNY in 1957 after having served in the United States Marine Corps. Andrade was a lieutenant in Engine Company 82 at the height of the war years in the South Bronx. He later served as the captain in Engine 69 in Harlem and Engine 320 in Queens. Deputy Chief Joe DiBernardo was appointed to the FDNY in 1966 following combat service in the U.S. Army. Chief DiBernardo's career included service in Manhattan, the Bronx, and Brooklyn. He spent the final 15 years of his career as a deputy chief in the Bronx's 6th Division, and both leaders have been instrumental in the development of countless firefighters, fire officers, and chief fire officers. We'll begin right from the start, gentlemen. What inspired you to join the military, Cap? My patriotic upbringing during World War II was a youngster, and... Uh, uh, senior in high school, the Chosen Reservoir incident, and I decided uh, I was going to serve my country. And what kind of duties did you perform while in the United States Marine Corps? Uh, United States Marine Corps, I was uh, 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 Paris Island uh, training for boot camp, uh, Camp Lejeune, uh, assigned to a weapons company. I was uh, considered a anti-tank assault technician. So that would be flamethrowers, uh, 3.5 rocket, explosive, et cetera. And Chief? All right. I, um, there were really no inspiration to go into the Army. Uh, there was no war at the time, but you really couldn't get a job. If you, you applied for a good job at the time. They said, have you been in the Army? Have you been in the military? No, I'll come back after you've been in the service. So I uh, wound up in the Army, and then I um, wound up in Vietnam, I got there early in 1965 when we first started our buildup. I was with the 1st Infantry Division. Uh, early on, the Marines got there in March. 173rd got there in June, and then the 1st Infantry got there in July of 65. Basically, uh, we just moved in. We lived in holes in the ground. We had uh, lived in a foxhole, lived through the monsoons. We didn't have tents or cots or any base camps or any of that stuff. Uh, we just uh, dug in, and people were shooting at us. And uh, my MOS was uh, recon, 
And then I wound up carrying the uh, radio for the operations officer. So I, I humped the PRC-10 and then the PRC-25, which is like another 27 pounds. So that's what I did. And that's um, how I got into the military. As I, Actually, I was 24. I wasn't a really young man. So that's how I got into the military in Nam. Sure. And, and what did that experience teach you about yourself and people in general while in combat? Well, you find out what you're made of. Uh, do you have what it takes? And do you have uh, the courage to do the job? Someone once said, courage isn't the absence of fear. It is the ability to overcome fear. So when the, when the shooting starts, believe me, you're... Your throat gets so dry, it's like you have sand in your mouth. You have this hollow feeling inside of you, inside of your stomach. Your heart is pounding. Your head is pounding. The noise is overwhelming from the incoming and the outgoing fire. And then you have a job to do. You have to get up and return that fire. And you have to move from one position to the other. And th that's when you find what you're made of. Now... I was with these guys before we went to Nam, and there were some really tough guys, big guys, tough guys and everything. And then some of the tough guys weren't so tough when the bullets started flying. And some of the little quiet guys, I'll never forget this Hispanic M60 machine gunner, little guy, carried a heavy M60, belts of ammo around him. And when, when the proverbial hit the fan, he stood up and did his job, and then some of these tough guys that were, were real tough in the States were cowering and didn't do their job. So you really find out what you're made of when you're in combat. Sure. And for both of you, what did, what did you learn about leadership in the military that served you well later as firemen and fire officers? My experience uh, in my deployments to uh, reinforce battalion in the Mediterranean and in Africa and uh, uh, thought I was on my way to Korea, but uh, ceasefire, we relieved an army uh, uh, battalion at uh, Camp Gifu in Japan, outside Nagoya, Japan. And uh, with those experiences, the Marine Corps values of honor, courage, commitment, and uh, kill the enemy before he kills you. Well, kill the fire before he kills you. So, uh, that was my experience, and uh, it certainly helped in the fire service. Okay. Um, I think a leader, you should be the point of the spear. You should lead by example. Uh, don't put men in a position that you won't go in. And, and like we always said in the in recon, we'd be first in and last out. So those were the leaders that we emulated, the, the, real, the real leaders, first in, last out. And for both of you, when and why did you decide to become firemen? Young and living in New York City, uh, civil service was a big thing. Uh, so I had no desire to go to college. And uh, therefore, uh, I studied, passed both tests, investigated by a Sergeant O'Connell, 109 Precinct, Flushing, Queens. I come three thousand miles to be your boss. Yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, but called first by FDNY and appointed to Engine 76 Manhattan. Okay. Um, I, 
I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But anyway, my mother and father lived through the Depression, and my mother always told me and my father always told me, you got to get a civil service job. The only people working in the neighborhood were the cops and the firemen. So in 1961, I, I took the fireman's test. I didn't take the police test. I didn't want to be a police officer, so I took the fireman's test. And um, next thing I know, um, I get out of Nam. Uh, they called me when I was in the service. The fire department called me, but I said I'm a little busy right now. <laughs> and then, uh, as soon as I got out, I signed the papers, and like six, eight weeks later, I was a fireman. So I didn't know anybody that was a fireman, and all of a sudden, I was a fireman. Okay, so we'll transition to the next part of that. You get on the job now about the climate during those times. Cap. You came on the job in the mid-50s, several years before the city would be ravaged by fire duty. What was life like as a probie and a junior guy in that era? First tour in the firehouse, 76 engine ladder, 22 battalion 11. Uh, orders from the lieutenant, I want you to, to hang on to Fireman McGinnis. And whatever he tells you to do, you do that. Uh, my equipment, rubber coat. Uh, leather helmet, rubber boots, uh, plastic orange gloves. Me? Take it? Are you finished a little? Okay. Um, actually, um, the war years, I came on in 66, and the guys in my probie school were still living in the Bronx. And I believe the war years really started around 1968. And... Uh, I was in the job in 68 and 36 engine when, when the interchange program started. So uh, it, it really wasn't like a junior guy experience. I never mentioned Vietnam. We didn't even talk about Vietnam in those days. So it was just, uh, it was just like a, a probie, keep my eyes open, my mouth shut. And for both of you, were there a lot of uh, former military guys on the job? Yes, a lot of World War II guys. and. Uh, you know, a fellow's in the uh, uh, a machine gun on a, a B-29, uh, fire's not too bad. You know, he, he'll, <laughs> he'll kill that fire. He's not worried about it. <laughs> I had a lot of good role models when I came on the job. I had a lot of guys from World War II, um, prisoners of war. Um, we had an officer named Gentleman. We called him Gentleman Jim. He was uh, at Normandy. He drove a landing craft. I had a lieutenant. In 36 engine, we called them Father Joe. They were just cool and calm. And I had a fireman in 16 truck that got the Navy Cross in Korea that should have got the Medal of Honor. So th they were just great role models, great leadership people to follow. And I must say that we also had a lot of uh, officers that uh, some were uh, cool, calm, and collected, and those are the guys I wanted to be like. And we had some that we call screamers, and some that would say, move in, you guys, move in. Well, why don't you move in with us, Lou? And so it, not, not everybody was 100%, but most of the guys were. You know, and uh, I tried to emulate the really sharp guys, the, sure. the guys I wanted to be like. And what were the senior men like during that period? Senior men were very willing to, uh, to teach us uh, their experience. They gave us all the knowledge they had as far as fighting fires and 
they also were committee work. Oh, you have to do committee work. And they were willing to work along with us and, and help and, uh, and camaraderie-ship. It was was tremendous. It, it was a family. Yep. The senior guys had a couple of things. Uh, they had the knowledge of the job, and then they had the experience to implement that knowledge, and, and they had the courage. And the main thing is that a lot of them had calmness on the fire. So you don't want to start screaming at a fire. You want to be cool, calm, and collected. And those are the guys that uh, broke me in. Was drilling a significant part of the tour? And, and who conducted the drills, the officers or the senior guys? Drilling was always conducted by the officers, uh, even chiefs sometimes. With, uh, we had a chief in quarters in the uh, 11th Battalion in 76-22. The officers and, of course, the senior men would always do the demonstration, a couple of the senior guys. And, uh, and, and a nice thing is that uh, as a probie, uh, you had hands-on. That was a definite. Yeah, um, we had, um, back in those days, we had a TV show called On the Job. And we used to, that came on at night. I forget, I think it was on 7 o'clock. We used to sit in the kitchen and watch this little black and white TV. And uh, we watched that. The drills, the main drills I used to do were, as an officer, was we would rehash a, a recent fire or something like that. And it, a lot of times in the in the 70s, in the busy areas, like I didn't have to drill. The guys, they weren't going to learn anything. What we did drill is we rehashed the fire that we at, were at recently. Or if somebody had a little skill in something, like I picked up a little trick on how to pick uh, padlocks, and I could do it with a screwdriver. So I would drill... When I was bouncing around to different companies, I'd say, here's a good drill, let's let's go over this. Or anybody have a special skill that they can bring to the guys? So basically, uh, in the 70s, in, in the 60s and the 70s, when we, you know, I was working in busy companies, you know, there wasn't a lot of drilling. We were usually out going to fires. Talk about an interesting parallel from when the cap got on. In today's fire service, officers are so burdened with paperwork <clears throat> Uh, it leaves an enormous gap to be filled, and and that gap sadly has to be filled by by senior guys or middle management guys. You're talking about a real change, uh, and also think about the tool complements, right? How extensively rigs are equipped now compared to when you guys got on. Usually, when when Jason and I give a, a presentation, we often think about that that great picture with Patty Brown and Jay Fishler. You know, 26 truck back in the 70s had literally a hook and a ladder. What tools did you have on the rigs back in your day? Well, uh, I tell you, one of the tools that impressed me was a life net. And part of my uh, instructions in probie school was jumping into the life net. And uh, that life net had to be taken out once a week, dusted off, aired out. And uh, how about the Pompier ladder? That was, uh, that was quite an experience, moving that ladder up three, four stories, the, the, the training school. Uh, only had a chance to use it once in a vacant building to, to get in. But, uh, and luckily, uh, Amsterdam Avenue, somebody at a window, five floors up, people in the street yelling, jump. Well, thank God. He did. 
because there's eight of us. They wanted at least eight men in the officer. We don't look up, he does. And uh, we were happy that there were the, the fellow did not jump. Yeah, we, we had this, yeah, when the tool, the job was archaic when in the 50s and the 60s. Like Louis said, the they had the scaling ladder. It, it was a great tool. I don't know why they ever got rid of it, especially at Brownstones where you could get it into the rear yard. And one of my friends made a great rescue with the scaling ladder at the post office fire in Manhattan. And we had the life net, and thank God I never had to use that. But most of uh, the tools were, you know, back from the 40s, the 30s, the 20s. But uh, later on, we did get some better tools. And I never had to use the life net, Louis. The only time we ever used the life net is... I remember we had a lieutenant that we weren't too crazy about, and he was going to take, is always breaking our chops. So we, the guys took the life net, they put it outside the second story window, and they're waiting out there. So I came into the office, and I, and I told the lieutenant that he was breaking our chops, and he was driving me absolutely crazy. And I jumped up on the windowsill, and I said, you got to leave. You got to get out of this company. You drive me crazy. I'm going to kill myself. And he looks at me. So I jumped out the freaking window into the light, but he didn't know the life net was there. So we had a lot of fun with this lieutenant, but uh, he was an old World War II vet, but I think he was shell-shocked, actually. But he was a good guy, so that's the only time I ever used the life net. That's a great story. When you two first got on, what was considered a busy company in terms of run totals? Busy countries, uh, busiest companies uh, on the uh, west side, uh, would be uh, 40 truck, 125th Street. On, on the east side, of course, would be uh, uh, 26 truck, 58 engine, 12 battalion. Uh, but a busy company in those years was doing probably approaching 1,200 runs. And that was considered busy. And that was parts of Brooklyn. Uh, Bed-Stuy would, be would be the same. And the lower Manhattan started to get busy. So uh, we were probably doing 800, and we thought we were you know, trying hard to catch up, but we didn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> well, in 68, when they started the interchange program, a, a busy company was defined as doing 3,000 runs a year. So if you were doing 3,000 runs, you qualified to go on interchange. Or if you had a, X amount of hours of work, on the night tour, then you were qualified to go. So a busy company was defined as 3,000 runs. Today, everybody's doing four or 5,000 runs today. And a lot of them are emergency calls, I believe. Yeah. 58 Engine was actually the first to break the 3,000 run barrier. They had a party in quarters, and I forget the name of the commissioner who came and said, this is amazing, and this will never happen again. And then all holy hell broke loose. Let's transition to our next question. Do you remember your first job? Uh, one of my first jobs, uh, Manhattan Avenue off 110th Street, and uh, 47 engine was and 40 truck were at another uh, another call, and we uh, turned the corner and there was fire out the top floor window. And uh, so it was just 76. 22 and the 11th battalion on the scene stretched two and a half inch line and unfortunately uh, we stretched a little short 
the fire was put out and there was a child that uh, was lost. Uh, what I remember about that fire was that back in quarters, fires were critiqued. And the chief uh, saying to us members, because some of us thought, you know, what could we have done differently? How could we? And he said, men, what did you see when you turned the corner? And of course, a few of us said, fire out the top floor window. He said, yes, you did nothing wrong. Uh, that child was dead when you arrived. And uh, big help for us. And what kind of manpower did you have on the rigs back then? Engine companies, uh, chauffeur, officer, two men on the back step, truck company, uh, chauffeur, officer, sometimes on a tour, four men, which if they had the manpower, the battalion would, would of course, ha have a, a, a five-man truck. Okay. Um, my first uh, fire... I was appointed, my first assignment was 39 engine up the Upper East Side. And my, one of the first the fires I had was a manhole fire. And um, I can re remember it vividly. We're standing there on the street on 3rd Avenue and the smoke's blowing out of the manhole. And the manhole blew. And for a second there, I flashed back Six weeks earlier, I was in Vietnam with incoming mortars. So for a second there, I, in my mind, I flashed back to incoming, and I hit the deck on 3rd Avenue. I'm on the ground. The firemen look at me, and they go, holy shit, what kind of a, what, who did we get here? What is this probie? He's afraid of a little manhole fire. But in my mind, six weeks ago, I was in the jungle, and in my mind, it was incoming. So I was totally embarrassed, and they uh, quickly broke my chops, and they probably thought they had some not-so-good firemen. So within like a week, we had a job in a tenement and stretched the line, moved in. I moved up on the line. Eventually, we put the fire out. Piece of cake, man. There's a piece of cake. This job is easy. Take the, the games. Hey, probably come here. Wash down. About a day later, we had a job in a high-rise apartment dwelling I, I was a hookup man in the standpipe, and I followed the line in, pitch black, heat. Followed the line in, we put the fire out, and piece of cake, man. This, you know, this job, you know, this is a, I can do this job. This job's not hard. Never had one ounce of fear in me. You know, I just came from being shot at to just stretching a hose line. So that was my first job, was kind of embarrassing. But then I realized, you know, I, I had no fear. I could do this job. It's extraordinary that 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 transition was so quick from from the battlefield to the fire ground. How long do you think it was before you, you got Vietnam mostly past you and then you focused totally on being a fireman? Well, in 1966, I, we didn't even talk about, nobody said to me, hey, Joe, what was like Vietnam like? No, we didn't even talk about it. The, there was no mention of military service or anything, so... I, it was, I held it within me, and it was recessed in me, and uh, I knew I had been in a tough place, and there's nothing worse than combat. So uh, I always respected fire, but I was never afraid of it. So 
I internalized Vietnam and I just went on with my job as a firefighter. Thanks. You know, Jason Brezer is in the room and I've never actually asked him the question. We have about 1,400 guys uh, in the FDNY who have served the nation during these conflicts, these wars. Um, and I've never really thought about that till now. The transition that these guys and gals make from the battlefield and back on and through multiple deployments and how difficult that must be. Um, that's something we can probe in the future. We're gonna transition again. When did you know you wanted to study for promotion and what was the motivation? Most firehouses have study groups. There's always that drive to be promoted to officer. And so uh, I wanted to be part of that group. I, I wanted to uh, uh, pass a test, become an officer. Uh, of course, there was motivation uh, of imp improving yourself. There was a, a, a pay raise, of course. And, uh, and I was just uh, in with that group that desired to in improve and uh, move forward on the job. After a few years on the job, I realized that, you know, I could do this job and I could be a leader. I saw some really good leaders that I wanted to be like, and I saw some really bad leaders I didn't want to be like. And what really motivated me was the money. When I was a fireman, we were making $7,800 a year, and a lieutenant was making $2,000 more than us, or I think he was making $10,000 a year. And back in the 60s, you could buy a brand new Mustang for $2,500, or $1,500, $1,600, I think. And you could buy a nice new car for $2,000. So I'm thinking, gee, for two, I make lieutenant, I could buy a new car. So what motivated me was the money. That's great. And when you were promoted, what were some of the mistakes that you made when you were promoted to lieutenant? I, I don't want to pray, but I, I, I don't remember making too many mistakes. Uh, uh, I just felt that uh, I had to be honest. I had, I had to be uh, active. Uh, I had sometimes a bend. And to be a good leader, uh, be aggressive when there is a work, a working fire or uh, uh, some other kind of emergency. And, uh, and, and I, I felt I can do this job, but uh, Louis do it right. When I look back on my career as, as a company officer and, or whatever, uh, when I first got promoted, I, I have to tell you the truth, uh, it was like um, back in those days, it was the Wild West. It was hats and horns, we used to call it. And I remember like I would say, please God, let me get through this tour alive and let get nobody killed. So if I might have been a little better in personnel management, I think, you know, I could have been a little stronger with some of the boys that were out of control, so to speak. And, uh, you know, you have to realize that the 60s and the 70s, it was the Wild West in the ghetto. And the guys were riding like it was the Wild West, and some of them were like um, Doc Holliday at the OK Corral. And there was hats and horns, if you know what I mean. And I, maybe I could have been a little stronger, but 
I said a prayer and I said, God, let me get through this tour and nobody got hurt. And I managed to get through all those tours. So if I had uh, one thing I could have done better, maybe I could have been a little stronger as a, in personal management. Okay. And what advice would each of you offer firefighters today who are going to be making the transition to company officer? I think the most important thing is, is that uh, uh, con continuously uh, studying, observing, uh, asking questions, being part of a of a of a, of a uh, study group, and uh, uh, being lucky enough to be in a company that's doing some work. Uh, all these things, uh, I, I believe, help to move on and, and possibly even uh, go another grade. My advice to the new people are, I always use these words, I said, you were promoted to serve your men, not to have them serve you. And when I was in the division and I was a deputy chief from 1984 to 2001, and I was also a staff chief in that period too, a two-star chief, new officers would assign to the division, all ranks from lieutenant to battalion chief, I'd send them down and then I, I would say those exact words to them. You were promoted to serve your men, not for them to serve you. And I want you to be the tip of the spear. Don't send anybody where you won't go. So that's my, my advice to the new officers. That's great. And what rank or assignment was most rewarding for you and why? I think captain is, is more a little more of, of a satisfying position because uh, you're a boss now of, of three lieutenants and 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 uh, uh, 20 30 men and uh, as a captain you get the chance to be an acting battalion chief so uh, you're learning more about the job you're you're uh, you're handling uh, a more important job you uh, more members uh, and and it's a challenge because uh, uh, they're looking up to you for for leadership and uh, you can tell when you did things right, and if you didn't, you had to correct them. Okay. I loved every rank, and every rank had its outstanding moments and things to do. I think the greatest thing ever in the job is being a nozzle man at a good job. Nothing like taking that nozzle, going down that hallway, putting out three, four rooms of fire. The, the, that's the greatest thing in the world. Now, I was in an engine and I was in a truck, and you force the door. It's just manual labor. And pulling ceilings is probably the worst, toughest job I ever did in a smoky job and a taxpayer, pulling those tin ceilings. And I wasn't a big truckie, as you can see. As a matter of fact, when I went to 16 truck and I got a wall locker, the guys, uh, there was the shelf, big shelf in the old wall locker that was built in the 1800s, and I couldn't even reach the top <laughs> shelf. So the guys gave me a step stool breaking my chops. But uh, I loved nothing like being a Nazim, and I loved every rank, and I loved being a deputy because the deputy, you only went out the door for all hands working and doubtful. So you only went to jobs. You didn't go to the bullshit runs. <laughs> The gas leaks and the and the food on the stoves, and all the all the emergencies. You only went out the job out the door to a good job, or a hazmat collapse. Train. I had train wrecks. 
airplane crashes, gas explosions. I mean, I only went, as a deputy, you only went to the good stuff. And, and uh, that, so I, you know, it's the longest I spent in any rank was as a deputy chief from 84 to 2001 with two little vacations in there in the middle <laughs> when I, well, actually one vacation, when I went on to staff and I became assistant to the chief of department, I was a two-star chief for, well, let's, if you want to know the story, when I left the 6th Division, they, they had a pool. It was $20 a man. How long is he going to last on staff? And the over was uh, six, over six months, and the under was three months. So I, 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 I was on staff for eight months. And the reason I left the staff, I really loved being citywide commander. That was a lot of fun. And I really just went to third alarms and, uh, and other things like that. And actually, when I, we were headquartered in Manhattan, and we'd get a job in Brooklyn, and of course we'd get lost because I always got lost in Brooklyn. Manhattan was easy; the streets all had numbers. Brooklyn, forget it, and Queens. We were as citywide chief. I was lost half the time. But anyway, we had a new fire commission. I I was appointed assistant to the chief of department Fusco, and the fire commissioner was Charlie Rivera, great guy. And then a guy named uh, uh, I won't even give you his name came on. And he was a police officer. He was a treasury man or something like that. Yeah. So, he, you know, I, uh, he didn't, I didn't like the way he treated the chiefs. The chiefs, he was very disrespectful and everything. And um, I, I uh, decided that I could not take that disrespect towards the chiefs. So I reduced myself in rank. And I made sure it was on the order that I reduced myself in rank. And I went back to the division. So I enjoyed being a staff chief. I loved being a deputy. In each of the ranks that you just talked about, how long did it take you to feel confident leading the men? Didn't take me long. Uh, I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, not far from the firehouse, uh, two frames. Uh, we roll out two frames, and uh, I transmit a second along. And... Uh, well, guess what? Outrolls 82, 85, 31. And my captain, who was acting battalion chief, uh, he comes out last. And when the deputy gets there, he said, Lieutenant, why did you transmit a uh, second alarm? You had a chief in quarters. I said, yes, but the chief came out last. And I remember my captain, Charlie Ham, saying, son, if you're in an officer's position or acting officer, never be afraid to transmit a second. The guys will come. If they don't go to work, they'll be hugging their brothers they haven't seen for a couple of weeks. Just do what you feel is right. Actually, as a lieutenant and a captain, I felt comfortable right away. It was basically, instead of being the nozzle man, you were next to the nozzle man. Instead of bang forcing the door, you were telling them, you, you don't have to tell them, you're just standing next to the guy forcing the door. Um, I remember when I was a captain it, down in the first division and the third division, which is lower Manhattan and midtown Manhattan, the scariest place I ever worked in my life, first division and third division. I'll take the South Bronx and the ghetto in Brooklyn any day of the week over Manhattan. I had a job 
And in the old days, we had a signal called a 1030, which was a working fire, which they've done away with. So I, we turn a quarter, fires out one window, I transmit a 1030, we go up, we put the fire out. The chief calls me down and said, Cap, why did you transmit a 1030 and not a 1075? I said, Chief, fires out one window, one window, one room, one room, one line. <laughs> we put the fire out, didn't we? He goes, okay, Cap, that's very good. So I was comfortable in that rank. And then being a lieutenant or a captain, you have your company. You got one piece of the fire. And, you know, you had your the fire floor, the floor above, the backup line. That was easy. Now you transition to battalion chief, you have the whole fire. You have the fire floor, the floor above, the exposures. I was lucky. I went to Brooklyn. And I was covering in the 5-7, the 3-4, which is no longer with us, the 2-8. And the guys were just the best firemen in the world. And I didn't have to tell them what to do. It's not like TV. You don't have to stand there and the chief goes, take a line, do this. You don't do anything. The brothers just go to work and you stand there and observe. And uh, try not to get in their way. And eventually, you know, the, the more fires I went to, the better I felt, the more comfortable I felt. And it probably took me about maybe a dozen good jobs where I started to feel comfortable as a battalion chief. And then I, I went to so many fires as a battalion chief in Bed-Stuy and Bushwick that, you know, we had, uh, Bushwick was like, the row frames were multiple alarms. We either put it out or we stopped it at the corner. So... You know, I really got to go to a lot of fire duties, a fire duty in the early 80s as a battalion chief, and uh, I felt comfortable, went to a lot of fires and felt comfortable. So when I made deputy, I had already been to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fires, and I felt comfortable right away. That's great. For our listeners outside of New York, can you explain why it's so difficult fighting fires in the first and third divisions in, in Midtown and Lower Manhattan? All right. You have... Uh, your basic um, residential area, it, say in the, most people in this country, fire departments throughout America are residential areas. It's a private dwelling or a two-family dwelling. One line goes into the fire floor, second line goes into the floor above. You have your two trucks, make your search, that's it. Bing, bang, go. Now you get the city. When I uh, covered through uh, Queens and the outer boroughs, in New York City, Everybody wants to get a piece of the job. Your job as a, as a chief was trying to, hey, guys, don't go, we have enough guys in this. Stay out of the fire. Like, you know, you know, there's no, you don't have to motivate New York City firefighters. They're the greatest. Uh, now, the first division, now the Bronx, we had tenements. We had big H's, 150 by 150. We had uh, brownstones. Brooklyn, we had frames. And we had rose, rose stores or taxpayers, we call them. Once you've been to 100 fires in them, nothing's, you know, there's always, fire's always going to surprise you. Every fire's different. You never know when it's going to come up and, and bite you on the ass. But Manhattan, especially the first division, you have a lot of old lofts with straight run stairs. You have uh, occupancies with, that were renovated, that they sheetrocked over the old elevator shaft. Uh, interior shafts, buildings that go from one block to another. 
sellers, subsellers. Uh, you, you don't know what you're going to have. I've had office building fires that took us a half an hour to find the fire. I've, I had fires in the, um, speaking 9-11, I had fires in the Marriott Hotel when it was under construction. Uh, it's just, uh, just to find the fire, to get to the fire floor, a lot of times you don't want to take the elevator, so you got to walk up 10 flights of stairs. And it's just, and a lot of the, the office buildings and the high-rise residentials are fireproof dwellings. So it's like going into an oven that you can't see anything. You know, I've been at jobs where we went down the hallway, two, hand, two, two and a half inch lines into this black oven, and we just moving in and moving in, moving in in Manhattan. And eventually the fire goes out and the chief comes up and says, well, great job, guys, great job. I said, look around, chief, there's nothing but ashes here. We didn't put the fire out, it burnt itself out. I mean, that's how tough the jobs are in Manhattan were. Now up in the Bronx, tenement, you know, once you have been to 100 tenements, it's not gonna, sometimes it'll surprise you as it did on Black Sunday, which we can get to later. But most of the time you've been there, you've done that. First division, third division, Manhattan, Office building fires are terrible, and um, old lofts are terrible fires. And I give credit to the guys that work in the first and third division. They don't have a lot of fire duty, but when they get a job, it's really tough. Terrific. Now we're going to transition to a couple of questions for the captain. Cap, as I mentioned earlier, you came on the FDNY several years before the war years arrived, and you were already promoted to a lieutenant. Is there a particular moment or period where you realized there was a significant shift underway? Not really. Uh, we came to work and uh, the alarms came in and we responded. And uh, uh, I did notice that the morale was actually improving as we had more runs. Well, guess what? Uh, that's not unusual. The men, the men, uh, they want to be the best. They want to be the busiest. So uh, I, I, I noticed uh, members coming in earlier for a tour uh, in the engine company. All of a sudden, there's a guy's helmet on the nozzle. He's going to be the nozzle man uh, in the truck. Somebody's positioned is at the, the tiller wheel. Uh, so uh, there, there was some competition and and a gathering and togetherness that started to, to change a bit for the better. Did you notice anything in the neighborhood that started indicating that change was coming? Somewhat. In the beginning, of, in, in 82 and 31, uh, tenements occupied, school operating, children going to school, uh, stores open. A lot of movement, uh, like many neighborhoods in New York City. And then all of a sudden, we started seeing buildings that were partially vacant. And, and some of the, the people were, were moving out. And that was an indication that times are changing. I think maybe uh, uh, slum landlords, uh, drugs, uh, lesser drugs is, is changing this neighborhood. Sure. And for our listeners who would like an even deeper uh, examination of this, uh, Joe Flood's book, The Fires, is, is without question the definitive examination of some of the underlying factors that occurred here. 
And if you can't get access to the book, um, we've done a podcast with Joe and it's available on the LUF website. In that same mode, Chief, uh, Cap, excuse me, what was an average tour like when you were in 82? The kinds of running, explain for our audience, especially those outside of the city, what was, what was it like? The, the running we did, uh, false alarms, rubbish fires, abandoned derelict vehicles, uh, emergencies, medical, uh, electrical, and then there's a fire. And, uh, and you know right away, the chauffeur turns around and he bangs on the window like, okay, keep going, get us there, we can see it. But uh, it was just an experience that you'd take up and then it would start again sometimes and then again, all of a sudden there's another fire. But uh, the men, the men were willing, and uh, uh, it's amazing. Some of them were working second jobs, and it seems they never got tired. They loved it. I, I, I can't explain it. <laughs> How are we doing? Outstanding. Yeah. You know, uh, in '76, when I was UFO in '82, we had 156,000 structural fires that year. 156,000. Imagine that. Just think of those numbers. And another thing, this was before computers and electric typewriters, okay? And a lot of times the chief didn't get him get into the job. The chief made out the fire report. So if the chief didn't get into the job, we had to make out the fire report, remember? CD25A, I never forget the number. We had manual fucking typewriters. Okay, so we we get a job in a vacant building, one line, stretch the booster, Louis, rubbish in a vacant. It's a structural fire. So you're supposed to go back and type out a CD25A on a fucking manual typewriter like this. But we did have one-liners in those days. Outside rubbish was a one-liner. We took a one-line entry and we made it outside rubbish. So we took a one-line entry and didn't make it a structural fire. So probably we went to 200,000 structural fires in 1976 instead of 156,000. Right, Louis? Yes. My captain, uh, Al Gray, uh, he didn't like paperwork. <laughs> so uh, a lot of times, uh, 1092 was just a simple mark. Yeah. So. Uh, and if I was hanging around between tours, I'd hear uh, dispatcher calling engine eight two. Uh, uh, what do you got? And uh, ten ninety two. Excuse me, cap. Uh, lady says there's a rubbish in the back. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. I'd say, Al Gray, what do you have, cap? And he had like. 14 false alarms. Yeah. I know he was rubbish fires and other stuff. So. Yeah. yeah. There was ways to cheat. When the interchange came, right, if you did like 25 before midnight, you went? 
Well, there's a certain eight, amount of hours and a certain I amount think of runs. Eighteen runs allowed you and a couple hours work. To, uh, well, no, if you did it before midnight, you could. They would. They would give you the at midnight. You could leave. So, Cap, you were assigned uh, to one of the most prolific companies and units during the war years in the South Bronx, eighty-two engine, in large part due to Dennis Smith's report from Engine eighty-two, and as well as the BBC's Bronx is Burning documentary in which you are prominently featured. What were the greatest challenges that you dealt with during this period? Keeping all the members uh, as, as, as one group and, and uh, getting the job done, the mission accomplished. Guys would tell me years later, uh, I mentioned the committee work we did. Uh, Al Gray assigned us uh, uh, polls on Wednesdays and Fridays, windows on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. We did the job the way it was supposed to be. We fought fires. We did committee work. Sometimes I, I would hear a, a little complaint, but the men were good. They always did the job. They came through. And, and the men are smart. If I can just go off a little bit. We had an investigation uh, uh, or a visit from the 6th Division, an old-time Deputy Chief, Chief Anderson, and 85, 82, and 31 are lined up. Uh, battalion and quarters is not bothered. And uh, after the roll call is called, Chief Anderson comes up and stands in front of me and says, Lieutenant, you have been a little too cavalier lately. And there is quiet, and eight seconds of quietness can be long. And then all of a sudden, one of my firemen said, Chief, he doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> and then there's quiet. And one of the truck members, Charlie McCarthy, Woodenhead, senior truckie says, Lieutenant, who took the test for you? <laughs> and of course the chief with a straight face said, if you have a dictionary upstairs, Look it up and call me. Took a mark and left. <laughs> so the men, they know how to, to bring you back to earth and, and know that, you know. <laughs> and you mentioned Charlie McCarthy, so, who recently passed. Yes. Uh, his son Jimmy is on the job right. now, serving in the UFOA. Uh, legendary individuals. As the running escalated, did that impact the morale of the men? The morale, as, as the runs increase, the morale increases because they're, they're like number one. I took a, a nozzle tip, I took the, the privilege to get a nozzle tip uh, when we still had brass, and I put on it 1969, uh, 9,111 runs. And... Uh, of course, that upset 85 engine. Uh, I made sure we beat him by about 50 runs. First in the Bronx, right? First in the Bronx. First in the hearts, but second in the Bronx. <laughs> and Cap, anyone who came on the job after that era holds your generation in the highest esteem while also romanticizing the war years in the same way that military members might romanticize World War II. Were the war years as romantic as history might portray them? 
I'm going to say something strange. No. Uh, we didn't call it the Warriors. We just, we came to work. We were busy, and the word busy was used. Uh, busy, busy, busy was always, uh, how busy are you? Uh, who's the busiest company? Uh, were you busy last night? And so it wasn't the war years. It was, it was just uh, a great group of, of officers and members doing the job and enjoying it and uh, uh, helping the community. Uh, Mother Wall's church across the street had a, a fundraiser. Well, we bought lunch from them and, and helped them. Uh, uh, when there was a group of, of uh, young uh, men in the ghetto area, uh, we chipped in, bought them shirts, and they won the championship that year. Uh, the federal government had a had a uh, had a, a program where we gave out lunches. One thing, if I may. Sometimes the bologna sandwich went flying down into Vail Avenue, but they loved the fruit. They always kept the fruit. That's great. And who were some of the best firemen and fire officers that you worked with during this time? You know, there, there, there's so many, and, and uh, I'm old now. I can't remember all the names, but... Uh, I mean, I, I can mention names that I'm sure people who, who would remember, like uh, uh, for punishment, they sent us Tom Neary from Brooklyn, a, a medal winner. He gets another medal. I mean, that's not punishment. He loved it. Uh, uh, Bob Farrell, a uh, medal winner in four truck, becomes lieutenant and then captain. He gets another medal. There were so many good firefighters and chiefs it's hard to mention them all, but we just mentioned uh, uh, Charlie McCarthy and, and in the engine, Willie Knapp, and my buddy uh, uh, officers uh, uh, like Al Gray and, and Tom Walt, senior lieutenant, 45 engine, had Gallagher. I mean, every company had their men, uh, their group of men of, uh, and officers. So it would be hard. I'd, I'd have to name probably a couple of hundred names, and I... I forgot a lot of them. Sure. It was just to be with a group of men that were so willing and so happy to, to do a tough job and do it right. But what was it about them? Like, what were the traits that made them this good? The traits was camaraderie-ship. I mean, in the Bronx, I think it's a, a Joe's son, Joey. And now, this is going to sound strange, but... Uh, we hugged each other. Uh, Joey kissed me on the lips. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know he loved me. <laughs> but uh, and of course, there's stories of of of, of the camaraderie shopping and the togetherness on 9/11 of two of the members hugging each other and saying, "We're not coming back from this, brother. Give me a hug." So uh, it's unbelievable. Just a, a great, a great group of men. True. And given the extraordinary amount of fire and runs, how long did guys typically stay in the company before they moved on? Uh, when I was promoted to Engine 82, uh, some of the older men uh, were moving on. Uh, for instance, uh, I took uh, Lieutenant Fabriel's spot, 
or, or was it Charter Rivera who became fire commissioner? Uh, he was promoted and immediately was assigned to uh, a 50 engine dash two. They put another engine in 50 engine. Uh, so some of the senior men did move on to get closer to home. Maybe tra traveling was part of it, crossing the bridge. But uh, we also had men that stayed 31 years in 31 truck. Wow. And as a fireman, came back as an officer. So uh, some of the men, Willie Knapp, came from 8 Engine downtown. Good mass man because downtown they're using mass and subsellers and sellers. And uh, did his whole career, the rest of his career in, in 82. And many others. Uh, and, and a lot of them were promoted. And so they moved in that fashion. We lost a lot of men to promotion and a lot of busy houses throughout New York City. Uh, for some reason, uh, they do have uh, many of their members who are promoted. I think that attests to, uh, I felt that I, I w must have done a pretty good job because so many of my members became battalion chiefs, deputy chiefs, Benny Cassidy, Tommy Kennedy. Yeah. Uh, Tom Neary, uh, I can go on and on and on. Members who became lieutenants, uh, great nozzlemen, great, great roofmen, forcible entry. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And you did a great job because all of those names that you mentioned, uh, those men are absolutely immortal. You just mentioned something about masks. And at that junction where you were there, was the mask something that was used? Yes, uh, of course. I had the experience as a as a young firefighter uh, back in the uh, in the late fifties and early sixties of the different type of mass, which is a combination of, of cotton and charcoal and uh, some uh, with a with a tape on the bottom and uh, and a canister mask, and it couldn't be used below ground because it didn't filter out carbon monoxide. Uh, one quick story, uh, so many men, first one or two fires, you wore your mask, uh, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. and the senior man would say, dummy, pull the tape off. <laughs> so, uh, but then uh, the first companies to get the mask were busy companies. Uh, 58 and 26 got them before. 76 and 22, and and, uh, and and other areas, Brooklyn, it was the same thing. The busiest companies got the masks first. And in the beginning, it was just uh, three masks, the officer and two firefighters. And that was it. If you had a, a four-man platoon, you didn't have four masks. You had three masks. I, I say most of the officers... Uh, Tommy Waltz was known for, uh, uh, and, and many Nozzlemen, uh, I won't name some other uh, other men who were great Nozzlemen, they weren't masked men. Farrell never wore uh, But uh, I found that, that uh, in some of the tougher fires, above the fire floor in basements and cellars, uh, you better have the Scott mask on. And uh, otherwise you might have a company taken over your line. So... Uh, uh, we soon learned, and with the help of of, uh, of uh, Billy Knapp from from uh, Midtown Manhattan and Bill Kelly from Midtown Manhattan, and Charlie Ham, uh, who were insisting on using masks, we used masks constantly. And the guys would would uh, for the two masks that we had on the back step, laying up on the hose bed, 
they fought to have those myths because they knew they were going to get the nozzle eventually. <laughs> That's great. And for a company that was doing so much work, was there a large number of guys trying to transfer into 82 and 31? There was always a group of men who, who wanted to, to, to get into a, a busy area. And if we had replacements due to promotion or injuries or retirements, the, the captain uh, always had the blessings of the, usually of the battalion and the uh, division to, uh, to have those men come to their company. And so we, we had a diversity of men from different areas, different boroughs. It, it's a good thing because you had people with different knowledge and, and experiences that, uh, that helped the group. Sure. And shifting gears a bit and talk about recall of fires. Can you recall one of the more challenging fires that you had during your storied career? Yes. Uh, I mentioned a fire that uh, was in row frames, not too far from the firehouse, 163rd Street. Tinton, I think Tinton Avenue. I had a fireman uh, who just came out of uh, motor pump school. And so he uh, was his first tour driving. We pulled up to a fire in the kitchen in one of the frame dwellings. And we stretched inch and a half. Chief Shanker was yelling, get me some pots of water. I got a line, Chief. And... Uh, then there's no water, pots of water. That's not going to put this fire out. I get word from my uh, one of the members outside. Steve can't get any. He can't. He can't get any water. He he ripped the the road to pump handle right out. And so I said, Chief, no more pots of water. Transmit a second. <laughs> Unfortunately. 85 engine, rolled up the street, got a fire hydrant, and uh, it became a fourth alarm. So. Was the ancient chauffeur considered to be like a, a, a valued spot? Hook up and look up. <laughs> well, the younger men, uh, the younger men didn't want to be showed. Lieutenant, I'm, I'm not, I want to go to chauffeur school. Uh, I might say, and it was wrong, the captain told me to get some men. <laughs> Forget it. I want you to go to chauffeur school. <laughs> but uh, they, they wanted to be in the action in, in the fire building. They didn't want to be chauffeur, but uh, a good chauffeur is an officer's blessing. He knows the area. He knows where the hydrants are. He can get you water from a hydrant some way. Uh, and that particular fire, if we had known that they had told us there was a, a rod underneath, if we could have knew about it, they painted it as a result, Chief O'Hagan, because he, he told me to send him a report. Uh, we could have thrown that rod forward. We would have, we would have put it in, in the pumps. But... Uh, if I may, a funny story about Chief sure. O'Hagan. Oh, yes, I was just going to go there. Okay. Bob Frown, no Chief O'Hagan. Bob's called to the street first on this fiasco fire. And uh, he comes back and he says, Louis, the Chief wants you outside. So I go outside, and uh, the Chief says, uh, 
how do you do on the alarm? And I thought, you think he says, how do you do? I said, I'm fine, chief. How are you? No, how will you do on the alarm? The other chiefs were like, left the area, left me and the chief together. <laughs> Send me a report. Yes, sir. And a result of that report, we learned about that rod, which was painted, and other companies didn't have the problem we had. What was the consensus about Chief O'Hagan? And I'll ask Chief D to jump into this as well. My opinion, you know, I, I, I can remember, unfortunately, you know, we never lost anybody in, in, uh, from our, our area. Uh, as far as I'm telling you, lost, lost members, uh, except when, when uh, my car from 85 engine was detailed evidently to 31 truck and fell off the turntable, responding to a false alarm on, uh, on Southern Boulevard and around 173rd Street. That morning when I, re I, I, I was walking up the street, approaching the firehouse, and the members were gathered outside, and they were all gloomy. And, and, and as I approached, they were quiet, and I knew something happened. And, and soon after a roll call, Chief O'Hagan made an appearance and, and, and talked to us and was very gracious. And, and so, uh, could it be tough at times? Yes, yes, he could be. I remember uh, a, a third line on West, Westchester Avenue, the chief in the third battalion, he says, you're fired. I don't mind losing one, one or two buildings, but not the whole block. <laughs> he could be tough, but I, I think he was fair. I, I had no problem. I never had a problem with chiefs. If I screwed up and I got... Uh, got in a bit of a complaint or something. Uh, yes, Louie, you, you know, you deserve it. I, I, all the chiefs, uh, e even the ones that yelled at me, Lieutenant, come down here. Every time he came to quarters, he didn't like puddles of water on the floor, Chief Wilson. And Chief Wilson would come through that wicked door, splash. Lieutenant, come down here. And I said, Chief, don't you realize they're screwing with us? They know they're going to yell at me. They know you're going to yell at me. And he says, I don't care. I don't want any part of the water. And, and yet, at a fire where we lost three young teenagers, uh, uh, an awesome fire, Chief Grimes was called to the street uh, when the fire was out, and uh, the, the assistant chief investigating, I didn't know that Captain Grimes had said it was out five windows. I just saw a glow in the, in, in the alleyway. And uh, he said, uh, why did you stretch inch and a half, Lieutenant? And Chief Wilson was the chief at the fire. And I said, uh, I, I quoted the Book of Rules. A multiple dwelling fire above the first floor. And I hear, just as the chief is starting to, to address me after I gave that answer, Lieutenant, go back in the building. And as I leave and go back in the building, he says, you don't tell my officers how to fight fires. So the man that yelled at me was my was behind me, so uh, I, I found that that the overwhelming majority of chiefs were just just great chiefs, and I loved them all, and they loved us. Yep. 
O'Hagan. Sure. O'Hagan was like an enigma. He was he brought the job into the into the twentieth century. Before O'Hagan, we were fighting with nineteen thirties, twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties material. O'Hagan, one of the greatest things he brought into the job was tower ladders. That came in under O'Hagan. And if we didn't have tower ladders, the whole city would have burnt down during the war, during those times. O'Hagan brought in with uh, some of the names Louis mentioned, Bob Farrell and the guys. We they wrote things down, training bulletins. I mean, we had we didn't have Lattice Three, we didn't have any of that training bulletins. So finally, they started to codify all the operational things that we did and put it in writing, which was never done before. That was done on Lower Hagen. Tactics were written down. So a guy in this borough that wasn't doing anything could read about how to do it. And it became a unified way to fight fires, Lattice 3. O'Hagan brought radios into the job. As, a, as an engine company, uh, you know, it used to be start water, start water, and went down the thing, and you would the chauffeur in the street would hear them banging and forcing the door, and when he heard the, them not banging anymore, he said, oh, they must have got the door, then he would start water. We got handy talkies under O'Hagan. We got towel ladders. We got power saws. I think one of the greatest things was to codify everything and write things down. But O'Hagan was also, he wasn't uh, well-liked. It was not one of these, uh, he was one of those guys, do as I say, not as I do, because he had the legendary, he had, uh, he was known when he was in the third division to uh, uh, to do some imbibing, maybe I couldn't call it, but if, God forbid, you imbibed, he enforced all unit circular 202 vehemently, and if you imbibed, you would wind up losing your job. And O'Hagan was a known, uh, he was really out of control at some point, and I, I, I say that with all due respect. O'Hagan really brought the job into the 20th century. I was at jobs at, that O'Hagan, uh, we had like a mul uh, borough call up in Harlem, we top floor, middle winter, the nozzles frozen. So we got... Uh, a pot of water on the stove, and we're boiling the water to, and to make hot water to free our nozzle. And O'Hagan appears. He said, what are you guys doing? And one of the guys says, well, we're making tea, Chief. You want a cup of tea? <laughs> so he immediately had that guy lifted out of the company. You know, he had no sense of humor at all. And he was very, very uh, pugnacious and not nice. Bob Farrell, Captain Bob Farrell, who was the legendary Captain Bob Farrell, of lieutenant and captain of 31 truck, who was probably the greatest officer, one of the greatest officers I ever saw, right, Louis? Good officer, Bob, yeah. yeah. Bob was Batman, and Louis was Robin back in the day. Bob never wore a mask. When you're talking about masks before, he never wore a mask. He was, um, he was a, a, what do you call those hogs, you know, the, the guys, the demo guys? He was just UD, UDT in the Korean War, so he knew, how to, he knew how to get down on the ground and breathe. But Bob Farrell, would, would, would um, when he was in Fort Truck and O'Hagan was in the 9th Battalion, he would take care of O'Hagan, drive him home and everything. And then Bob Farrell, uh, O'Hagan lifted a lot of the guys out of 31 Truck. 
and you know, and he did. He wasn't nice back to Bob, who Bob was very nice. So he was nasty, but he did a lot of good things. So a lot of great things for the job, but he was a nasty guy. So that's my impressions of O'Hagan. And one of the things that he did, he thought about civil unrest. And I'll start with the captain, then we'll go to the chief. Cap, did you ex experience civil unrest during those days, 68, for example? What was that like? There was civil unrest. I, I find the most civil unrest was when we had the blackouts. But uh, when it did happen, it was serious. But I found that uh, a, a lot of the times it, it, it was, I guess, over-publicized for the most part. Uh, because so many times I, I, I would tell some of the civilian, uh, yes, would there be maybe somebody coming down with a television that didn't belong to them? But I would say, hey, get on this line and help us move it upstairs. And, and they listened to me. And, and when I, I walked the streets, I, I got to know people and said hello to them. And, and I walked the streets in Harlem. Was I sometimes a, a little anxious? Yes, but I, I never seemed to get bothered. But when it happened, I, I remember poor Vinny in, in a rubbish fire when a, a garbage can came off the roof and, and it just missed him. And I, I pulled the line out and, and let the fire go. Uh, burn it out slowly uh, uh, because that was serious. It, it, it would have hurt him. It would have killed him. Uh, so when it did happen, if a rock went through a window or something, it was serious. But uh, for the most part, I just don't remember that much problem except when there was the blackouts. Then it was really bad. Were we prepared? As a job, were, were we prepared for civil unrest? You want me to, first of all, I was, in the 60s, we had a lot of riots with the um, the assassination of, of Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, and all that other stuff. And there, there was, it was, it was, it was like a terrible, absolutely terrible. They were throwing things at us and shooting, there was shootings all the time. And the cops were, uh, that's when the cops were allowed to do their jobs. They, the cops would all carry a throwaway and plenty of shots fired. And it, Louis was just getting to the neighborhood, but I think the more of the point that you were talking about, civil unrest, and we would have command posts. And they wrote that all union circular, I think it was 138, how to set up a command post and have a task force. They didn't have that at that time. So we would go out, we would go to a command post. 58 engine was a command post. And we would go police car, a two engines, a truck, a chief, and a police car on a run. And uh, so we had to develop that during the riots of the late 60s. That was not developed at the time. And then uh, as we progressed in years, um, we, we refined that. And we had command post companies that had, uh, they were given uh, command post bo uh, portable boards where they had all the companies and they would dispatch them, give them a ticket, give them a run. So we went from having no plans to having great plans for civil unrest uh, in the 80s and 90s. And a, a captain of 44 truck, his, he was detailed to refine that whole training building. And civil unrest was a problem. I'm not addressing the blackout. That was yeah. another yeah. completely different thing. But we did have the riots in the 60s. Do you think that O'Hagan's vision 
was helpful? Oh, yeah, definitely. O'Hagan was a genius. He was chief of the department at 39 years of age. Was not well-liked, but he was a genius. And he, he brought all the training, great training bulletins, into the job. And even if you didn't work in Manhattan, you could read about a high-rise fire. Even if you didn't work in a tenement area, you could read about it, and you could learn about it. So when you got promoted, you knew something about it. What's extraordinary is, is I remember like senior guys telling me the only thing they ever said about Hagen was he was the guy that wants to do the job with you know 6500 guys well all right that's a, what happened with O'Hagan it was O'Hagan when we were going crazy and we had second sections and TCUs and second sections of trucks and engines and then O'Hagan started eliminating we had we had 17 divisions at one time we had he made the extra battalions we, he made the second sections of engine companies and truck companies. And then in the 70s, he started cutting them back. And I was telling you before, 1976, we had 156,000 structural fires. We probably had 200,000 structural fires. But O'Hagan was eliminating companies. So he wasn't well liked, but that, that. Also, another thing that came in on O'Hagan that we didn't have was minimum manning. But that, I don't think O'Hagan gave that to us. The union gave that to us. If you had two guys on the back step one day, you might have seven guys on the back step the next day. But thankfully, the union got minimum manning, four men in the engine, five men in the truck. Okay? So, and, and we got minimum manning under O'Hagan, but we also had the elimination of second sections and the cutback and a lot of companies and battalions. So a lot of a lot of guys were mad at him for cutting back while we were doing so much work. We were still, you know, we're still crazy in the 70s and the 80s. When I went to the 6th Division in 1985, I took out a, I was doing the annual runs and workers and I, I we were doing probably half of what we were doing in 1975. But still, we were doing more fire duty than any other company, uh, department in America. But we were doing half. And we had three divisions in the Bronx then, the 6th, the 7th, and the 9th. And in Harlem, you had the 5th, the 4th, the 5th, right? And then O'Hagan and the, the later people, they, they got rid of all those. They got rid of the 9th division. They got rid of the 4th division. They got rid of the 5th division. So the work in, increased because because the second sections were gone and the work, in, or it stayed the same, let's put it that way. And the division work picked up because we eliminated divisions. So, you know, you know, it was crazy times, that's all. Sure. We hope you enjoyed part one of this Leadership Under Fire virtual fireside chat. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss part two. If you like the show, please rate us, leave a comment, and share it. If you're interested in learning more about Leadership Under Fire events and publications, go to leadershipunderfire.com and join our newsletters. Thank you for listening.
The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.